please help me welcome Professor Tim Snyder. Okay, does that work? Yes. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this this is this is meant to be my my vacation, right? So in in my in my real life, I live in the East Coast, and um, you know it's my own mother and mother-in-law who are in the audience, and not someone else's. And in that way, and in so many other ways, um, it's different to be in California, right? As soon as the plane lands, and I look out the I look out the little window, and I see the palm trees, I start to feel different. And then I remember that other people actually live in this, right? And that this has a certain effect on how, you know, this distance and also just the Californianess of it all has an effect on how you see the world, right? So I'm going to be trying to reach across that a little bit because I think although we may share certain concerns, the sense the sense of urgency might be a bit greater if you're spending your time in Manhattan or in Connecticut or, or, or in places in places like that. Now, that said, um, where this book begins for me is not where I live, it's, it's, it's where I work. And what I wanna do in the next, probably just 25 or 30 minutes so we have time to talk, what I wanna do is give you a sense of where on tyranny comes from, um, what some of the arguments in the book are and how they might be 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 useful because for me although as you can tell you know from the accent and from the the jokes and from the you know the, the ellipses with which i speak english like all of us it, it it's it i don't write this book because of things i know about america right i mean the things i know about america i know under my skin from coming here i write I, from be, from being from here the things the, the things that i say about america in this book if they're of any use come from the fact that i'm looking at america from somewhere else I'm looking at America from where I spend my time, right? I'm a historian of Eastern Europe, of Central Europe. I've spent my adult life learning to read the dozen or so languages that I need to do my work. I've spent most of my time when I might have been outside, you know, playing soccer, instead in archives, reading records, be they of Jews who survived the Holocaust, be they of um, the Soviet secret police, trying to make sense of some of the most difficult and dark chapters of European history. That's that's where I've been, right? I haven't been watching, I should confess, I haven't been watching CNN that much, right, for the last 25 years. I haven't been watching MSNBC for however long it's existed. I haven't been watching I haven't been watching, I should, I haven't even been watching movies, right? I mean, like when I come to LA, everyone, I always get asked, where's Julia? I always get asked, like, have you seen this? Have you seen their, have you seen this Holocaust movie? And the answer is almost always shamefully no, right? Because I haven't seen any movies because like this, I, I'm a historian and I have small children and that's like a deadly one-two combination <laughs> for, for movie watching. Because like insofar as I have an attention span, it's like in the archives. Like the two hours to watch a movie otherwise is pretty much beyond me. So when I'm, where I'm coming to America is from that. It's as a historian of the Holocaust, a historian also of, of Soviet terror, terror, a historian of basically mid-century Europe or the darkest parts of mid-century Europe. Now, part of that, though, is, is having teachers, so the people who you know, led this kid from the Midwest into these histories were, the, were people who experienced it. So it's, you know, as, as, as the Russians used to say, um, and as they'll say again after they win, um, it's not an accident that my doctoral examiner 
my doctoral uh, supervisor was both what we would call a Holocaust survivor. That is, as a child, um, he lived in Warsaw with his mother and his brother, and the, the three of them survived outside outside the ghetto. Um, his father didn't. Um, and that he was also interned under under communism. It's not an accident that the people who I admired and who I learned from when I was very young were um, dissidents such as Adam Michnik in Poland or Václav Klaus in Czechoslovakia, very sophisticated anti-totalitarian thinkers of the 1970s and 1980s, who I later was lucky enough to come to know. So my perspective my intellectual perspective the concepts that i bring to america aren't coming from like i can you know i can like i can gesture at tom paine and ben franklin you know and james madison like the rest of them can i can do that you know and if you watch me on video you'll catch me doing it and you'll notice the book begins with the founding fathers but that's not really where i'm coming from really where i'm coming from are these teachers these people who confronted in their life and in their work much more difficult and trying circumstances than than we do yet than we do yet and who were able to simultaneously have artistic, right, artistic and intellectual lives, but also write and act politically, which is a little skill that I think we need to, you know, we need to be, we need to be picking up. So there's the history, but then there's also this, this, this fact of my teachers, my teachers who lead me back into this history for whom, you know, for whom this was personal and therefore, you know, one remove, it's also for me personal. The quotation at the, at the beginning of the book from Leszek Kolkowski, which says, you know, in politics, um, forgive me if I get, the, if I get, don't get it word for word, it's a translation from Polish anyway. In, in, in politics, to be deceived is no excuse. Leszek Kolkowski was probably the greatest historian of Marxism, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, my teacher at Oxford, but also someone who was in effect expelled from, from his homeland, right, and ended up teaching in, in the West. So these are, these are the continuities, these are the traditions that, that, that make me the historian and the writer that I am. But also, I'm not a kid anymore, right? I'm not as old as I look, but I'm also not as young as I once was. Um, and the, 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 I'm now, I've now reached the point where I've seen in the Eastern Europe of today, right, where I still go, where I still often live, where I've seen my own students, where I've seen the next two generations, where, where I've seen them experience democracy fail, right? I mean, so the big generational experience for me is 1989 and the end of communism. That's when I move into Europe. That's when I make these friends. That's when I learn these languages. That's when these archives open. But since then, right, a new generation has grown up, or a couple in Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and elsewhere, who have seen democracy either never come about or fail, right, or have tried to defend it, right, as in Ukraine in 2014. And and I've, I've seen people much younger than me, people who were in my seminars sometimes, um, be imprisoned, be detained, be tortured, and in some cases killed. So that experience, right, that experience which has been the experience of my 40s, watching people in their 20s as they try to persist, as they try to maintain, as they, as they choose to take risks, right, that's the third part of the lesson, right? So it's not just, my it's not just learning from people who, who, who experienced the mid-20th century, it's also trying to learn from people who are younger, people who are going through, who have gone through the, the kinds of experiences that we are also about to go through, I'm, I'm afraid. That's, that's where the book comes from. Now, um, it's, a very, it's a very short book, so I feel like summarizing it is almost a kind of mistake, but I will, because I, it's the kind of book that like, if you were if you were rude, which you're not, you could actually read it while I'm talking, right? Like you could get you could you could get through the whole thing while I'm while I'm while I'm talking, right? People wrote me long emails about the book, and I like 
so there's a classic like author, um, some of you will know about this, there's a classic author readership email problem which is the really eager reader who writes you the long email before they've read the book, right? And uh, no, this is really common. This happens all the time, I, I, basically every day. And, and they write you like these long, thoughtful emails about what might be in the book and like what they might think in response to what might be in the book. And in this case, so much more than all the others, I just want to say like, just you could read the book in less time than it takes you to write me this email. Please just read the book, right? With like my 600 Holocaust history books, 600 page Holocaust history book, I can, I'm okay, fine, you don't. But in this case, I think, yes, you know, just like walk the dog and read the book and then write me the email. Anyway, um, it's, it's, it, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna summarize it because it's, it's, meant, it's meant to be brief and I don't wanna talk for too long here because I, I want us to talk in the spirit of what Julia was saying. But I do wanna give you just a very brief kind of ch checklist of the things that you do learn. Or, or to put it a different way, some of the presumptions I have about politics, which may be a little bit different about the presumptions uh, about politics that prevail in, 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 in the US. And I have these in a certain order, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at these notes. The, the first thing, though, is, is a pretty simple one, which is that regime change can happen, right? Regime change can happen, happens all the time. And because it can happen, that means it can happen here, right? So the moment that you say it can't happen here, you're taking part in the regime change, right? The moment that you say anything like America is exceptional, the moment you use the phrase American exceptionalism, you've already taken a step into darkness, right? Because the moment that you do that, you're counting on some impersonal force, this exceptionalism, right, to save the day. You're, 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 you're giving away your own responsibility for nothing, right? You're selling it for the price of zero, your, your sense of responsibility, your civic duty. So the moment when people say it can't happen here or, you know, or, or American exceptionalism or the institutions, no, I mean, the institutions will only save you if you save the institutions. It's not about what the institutions can do for you, it's about what you can do for the institutions, right? So the, the first big thing that is sort of clear to me, just, just, just obvious, axiomatic, is that it can happen and so it can happen here. The second thing is that um, it happens to people, and again, I'll make the same move, therefore to people like us. So, for, I mean, it's not just that the young Ukrainians who are my friends or, or not so different, you know, in their values probably from, from, from you. I mean, they dress basically exactly the same way. They make similar kinds of art. They, they literally organize spaces like this, like my closest friends in Ukraine are actually people who literally transformed a building into a warehouse that looks, you know, a warehouse into a building that looks just like this with art that looks, sorry, Julie, looks, that looks just like this, right? The only difference is there's not as much sunshine in Kiev, but today, actually, it's like, you know, I'm feeling like I'm in Kiev, except for the bigger cars. There are bigger cars in the parking lot. Um, but it's not just that, it's that Germans in the 1930s, not so different from us. And in the ways that they're different from us, not always worse, right? Not always worse, longer attention spans, um, I shouldn't say that it's not probably not true in California, but like better physical fitness in some ways. Um, the ability to read, the press was probably better, right? I mean, until the Gleichschaltung, until the press was closed down, the press probably had a wider bandwidth of opinion in Germany in 1932 than in the U.S. in 2017. So, but the point is, the Germ like people, Germans in the 30s are not so different from us. And every, I know that's uncomfortable, but it's true. Um, and, and, and so the, that, it can, that, that happens to people, that happens to people like us. The third thing is that it happens fast. Happens, it happens real fast. So, um, even, so we're not talking really about revolution here. Revolution happens even faster. But most regime changes happen with some combination of election with unexpected result, right? Combined with other things. 
intimidation, maybe a coup d'etat here or there, you know. But usually it begins legally, right? Hitler begins legally, for example. Usually it begins legally, and then within a year to three years, the system is no longer what it was before. And that's true of Hitler in 33. It's also true of the communist regime changes of the 1940s. So Czechoslovakia in 1948, which is another example I develop in the book, they win the elections, right? The communists win the elections, and then a few things happen here or there. A couple of people fall from windows, and before you know it, you have a full-blooded communist communist regime. So it happens fast, but how does it happen fast? It happens fast by making you slow, by making you slow, right? So it moves on its own pace, and then you, for various reasons, don't, don't change fast enough, or you normalize, or, and this is our particular problem, you look at the television and the television basically tells you that it's normal. Like even when it doesn't tell you it's normal, it's telling you that it's normal because it's very normal to watch television. You know, so it, it, the, the changes, the, the gradation of the changes from day to day are generally not that great. And so if you just watch TV, it can seem like, okay, well, why should I do anything today? Maybe tomorrow, right? Manana or the day after, the day after tomorrow. Um, so it, it's fast and it's fast by, by making you slow. Um, one, one of the ways that it makes you slow, and this is maybe the key point in the book, and Julia already referred to it, is, is by way of mistrust. So mistrust. So like mistrust, okay. So if I, had, if I had a blackboard and a laser pointer, which I never do, which is fortunate, um, like no tech, I should not be allowed to use tech using both of my hands in a lecture is like as far as it really goes for me, like right hand, left hand. Um, it, it, if I, if I, but if I did, w w the little chart I would draw would go like this. Democracy... Um, this, we like to talk about democracy. That's like an, Americans like to talk about democracy. Democracy, okay, fine, I like it too. Democracy depends on rule of law. Rule of law depends upon trust. And trust depends upon a belief in truth, right? If you don't think there's any truth, it's very hard to trust anyone else. And it's very hard to believe. It's very hard for there to be social authorities like journalists or documentary filmmakers or teachers, right? Because if there is no truth at all, then those journalists and those documentary filmmakers and those historians are just various, they're just propagandists in different flavors, right? We're all just propagandists, right? It's all just, um, it's all just PR, as the Russians say, or PR, as the Poles say cynically. Everything is public relations, PR. Everything is just public relations, right? And they're just different forms of public relations, and it's all just one big lie. If you think there, if you're there, then that means trust is impossible, which means the rule of law won't work, which means forget about democracy. Democracy is not going to happen, which is why all of the people now who are going for this, right, going for the, the people who talk about alternative facts, right? The people who push the no reality as far as it goes, they're trying to, they're trying to get rid of this. They're trying to get rid of democracy. That's what it's about. Because if, if you go here, you're pulling the heart out of democracy directly, right? You're not bruising it. You're not wounding it. You're pulling the heart. You're ripping the heart out. You're killing it directly, right? Because without this, you can't have this, this, and, and this. So mistrust, like the inability to talk, the inability to believe, to trust anyone else, that's the lubricant. That's the catalyst. That's the thing which makes regime change happen fast okay so while like you're doing nothing or you're not you're not acting fast enough and you're doing it as individuals as atomized individuals as opposed to people who you know can get together in a group and see one another okay um and then let's see and then the the the, the final thing about you know the final sort of political intuition here and this is also very very simple is that ideas matter a lot 
ideas matter a lot and not everybody has a version of your ideas, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to do the trick now where I look into your skulls and see what your ideas are. Um, okay. So they all seem, it all seems to be like some kind of version of like pluralist liberal democracy, which is great. I'm with you, but not everybody sees things that way at all. Right. I mean, this is kind of, you can, you can correct me. Maybe it's different out here, but an American problem is to think, yeah, you know, yeah, sure, everyone has different ideas, but they don't, the differences don't really amount to very much. But sometimes they really do amount to a lot, right? Like the difference between Steve Bannon's ideas and my ideas actually amount rather to rather a lot, you know? Um, not everything is a version of pluralism or liberal democracy. There are ideas out there which are just opposed to it, right? Like, for example, Steve Bannon's ideas. Just opposed to it in the sense of meant to destroy it and then to remove it from the face of the earth. And that you have, one has to grasp that. That it's not just like a competition on a playing field, all these comfortable metaphors that we're used to. It's not just a, co a competition, you know, in the free market of ideas, blah, blah, blah. There are people who want to destroy the free market of ideas. There are people who don't want us to be free, right? I mean, that's, and I realized that's, that was like my conservative moment, but it is actually all about freedom for me. There are people who do not want you to be free. There are people who don't want America to be a free country, and they're in charge, right? You have to accept that people actually have qualitatively different ideas. And it doesn't have to be communism. It doesn't have to be national socialism, right? It can just be kleptocratic authoritarianism, which would already be bad enough. But that there are ideas that are really different from yours. That's important because that's a step towards understanding that you have to do something on, in the, on the basis of your own ideas. You know, you have to specify them and you have to do something. So that's what the book is really, is really meant to, to, to do. It's meant to suggest how things can go wrong or rather how things have gone wrong but it's also meant to suggest on the basis of what i think i understand from this history on the basis of what people much wiser than me who have experienced much more have said about this history and on the basis of what people younger than me have lived through recently it's also meant to to, to, to propose little things and medium-sized things and big things that that we all can do which leads me to where i just want to conclude i'm a historian so in some sense this is a book about about how we think about time, how we think about the past, how we think about the present, how we think about the future. And one way to define the stakes of all this is, is to think about time. So, I mean, it would be, I think, true. Um, it would be true to say this is a crucial moment. I mean, I happen to think that this is a crucial moment. Um, that is to say, uh, if America does, is not, a, like, one thing about being American is that you think you go and rescue you go and rescue other people, right? We think we go and rescue other people. You know, we're not always rescuing other people, but we think we're going and rescuing. If America goes authoritarian, right? Who's who's it going to be? Who's going to be the, the the Canadians, the aliens, the Canadian aliens, right? Who is going to rescue us? Nobody. There's no. We're it, right? If America flips into what one of my friends calls the B column, right? If America flips and becomes an authoritarian regime where is freedom going to come from? Where is it going to come from? I mean, Canada probably will survive as Canada, but you know, where, what happens in Europe? How many, how many actual democracies in the sense of pluralist, pluralist states with a rule of law are there, right? There are elections now. Elections are very fashionable. You know, why are elections so great? Because elections are a way that I can get you to ritually every two and four years to go and vote, right? And you have to vote for me. Um, not for me, for this gentleman. I mean, it doesn't have to be me. It can be anybody. D managing democracy is rather easy once you get rid of the rule of law. 
So democracy is fashionable. I mean, in that sense, Turkey's a democracy, India's a democracy, Russia's a democracy, all, Belarus is a democracy, right? They're all, they have elections. That's easy, right? But they're all authoritarian regimes, right? And when authoritarianism comes here, by the way, it's not, they're not going to get rid of elections right away. They'll have elections, but under special circumstances. They'll have elections in which not everyone can take part. They'll have elections in which fewer and fewer people can vote, et cetera. But no one's going to stand up in America and say, I'm going to get rid of elections. It, it'll, they'll just be Russified, right? They'll just mean a little bit less every time. Um, but, but my point is that it's what, what this is about. So this is, for me, a crucial, I think this is a crucial moment, right? I think America can swing either way. And if America swings, uh, what I don't, at all mind saying is the wrong way, then the rest of the world will follow. And then, you know, again, barring alien rescue, which by no coincidence, of course, is a very popular meme in the culture, right? I mean, this whole, like, like NASA finding other planets where we can live, who thinks that's a coincidence, right? <laughs> right? You know, that NASA found this system, Trappist-1, where there are like four Earth-like planets, that's not a coincidence. They were looking really hard for a reason, right? Um, but, you know, but, but in all seriousness, this is a moment where where how America swings will probably determine what what the whole 21st century looks like. What we do in America, what we do in the next six months will probably determine that. But I actually have something slightly more subtle in mind. What I have in mind is that there's a, that the book is historical not just because history is a grab bag of lessons. The book is historical because how we think about time, I think, is is is, is what enables us or disables us. Um, if if we think that everything is going to go well no matter what we do. And there are various versions of this. I mean, the, one of them is like the free market brings the capitalism and the capitalism brings the democracy. And that, you know, that if you have some store, another one is that like, you know, the inequality brings the Marxism and the Marxism brings the revolution. These, 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 these theological stories, right, about how history is on your side. If you have those stories, then you basically think, okay, there's some, there's some messiness, but everything's gonna be right in the end, right? That's what I call in the book, the politics of inevitability. And we've been in a, for the last 25 years, we've been in the politics of inevitability moment in this country, right? History is over, globalization, enlightenment, yada, yada. Um, and that was disabling, okay? Because that meant that we weren't as prepared for the things that that very mindset made more likely. Right? You know, when we said there was no alternative, we weren't making it true. We were just destroying our own ability to prepare for the actual alternatives. And now we're facing one. Right? And so the risk for me is that we would shift from that sense of time, you know, in which unfortunately we've educated our children, from that sense of time to another sense of time, which I call in the book the politics of eternity, which is where the fascists are, it's where the it's where the populists are, it's where, you know, the white supremacists are. The notion that history is all about some kind of cycle. It's one of Bannon's favorite words, cycle, where we are virtuous and we're at the middle. And everything that ever happens in history is that our enemies attack us from the outside. It sounds silly when I put it that way, but a lot of people believe some version of that idea. That idea handles globalization by saying, globalization isn't an objective problem that we all have to react to. Globalization has a face, right? It has a Jewish face, or it has a Mexican face, or it has a Chinese face, or whatever, but it has a face. It's not that we're in a real country with confronting real global issues. It's that we're innocent, but there are guilty parties outside. They're trying to penetrate, and so on and so forth. That version of history, you know, or the, of the past, it's not really history. That version of the past is, um, is what you can swing to, it's what people will swing to. Some people have already swung to right now. If you think that history was automatically on your side, things were automatically going to get better, it's very easy to swing to history's against, history's against us 
it's always working against us. Therefore, states of emergency are necessary, right? Therefore, maybe regime change is necessary. That's what I'm worried about. And what I'm trying to do in the book, I mean, not just as a historian, but as a citizen, is to defend something else that is history. <laughs> history as such, history as a way of seeing structures, because if you see structures, then you also see possibilities. History as a way of seeing moments, because if you grasp that you're in a moment, then you, are, then you also grasp that you're the co-creator of that moment and you have a certain amount of responsibility for that moment, not total responsibility, but also not zero responsibility, some responsibility. Um, and then also finally, that history is a way, again, going back to the theme that Julie introduced, history is a way of having company because you're really not alone. I mean, even when you're alone, like if you're alone and you're reading a book about people who have faced more difficult things than you and have responded in, in graceful and productive ways, then you have a kind of company, right? So one, one way of not being alone is this, right? Is being together with, with people in a, in a space. And that's actually one of the lessons in the book. But another way of not being alone is to realize there's, actually, there's intellectual and political companionship out there. For me, it's this East European Holocaust Stalinist variety. For other people, it will be other historical traditions, which can yield, I think, equally valuable lessons. But history itself is also a way of not being alone. Because the moment that you think like, okay, what we're in is totally exceptional and totally unique and everyone's ever, no one's ever been here before, that's disempowering. But fortunately, it's not true. <laughs> fortunately, it's not true. No historical moment is exactly like any other, but no historical moment is also completely unlike any other, right? And so almost wherever you look, you can find company and you can find advice and you can find ways of moving forward. That's where I'm going to leave you. Thank you very much. If you wouldn't mind just telling me who you are so despite like my introducing myself so now I do know mother and mother-in-law but like and and some people I, I, I actually knew over Facebook and have like produced themselves in real life which is wonderful like I really love that <laughs> um, no there's somebody here whose Facebook page I was just looking at two days ago and then she produced herself in three dimensions which is always great um, but I don't know all of you so if you wouldn't mind just get, give me your name and something about yourself when you when you ask a question yes please Yeah, so I didn't, I, I, yeah. Yeah, so the question is what, what to do next. Yeah, sorry, I, I skipped over that, which is what the book is actually about. Because <laughs> um, uh, I didn't, you know, as I say, it's a really short book, and I don't want to like, I want to take all the pleasure away. But um, so what I try to do in the book is go from one to 20 of things that are more or less, the things at the beginning are the things that are more relevant now. And then as we move towards the end, it gets darker. Um, I hope we don't actually have to get to the point of like the lessons at the end of the book are things like, um, you know, don't be afraid to die. So I hope we don't have to get to that <laughs> point. No, but it's actually it's, it's actually serious because if you don't like if you decide you're afraid, like if you decide there's nothing for which you're willing to take risks, then forget it. Right. And you might as well just forget it now. Right. We might as well just give up. Because if there is really nothing for which anybody's willing to take risks then forget about America, forget about it. Just forget it. I mean, that's not even worth my time. Right. To be here. If nobody's going to take risks for anything. If really nobody's gonna take risks for anything, you know, then forget it. So anyway, that's that's the end. But we're not there yet. So um, at the beginning, I, the very first lesson, which I think is the most important, um, and I'm sure you're well beyond, is don't obey in advance. 
don't obey in advance. So, which comes from a, 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 a specific history of Nazi Germany in which we understood at a certain point that a lot of the power of, of, of Hitler, the Nazi regime came from um, anticipatory obedience, which is one of the few phrases in English that sounds just as awkward as it does in German, maybe even more so. Um, anticipatory obedience. So you, you ha nobody's given you an order, nobody's told you what to do, but you feel that the atmosphere has changed and you wanna have your own place in it. And without consciously doing so, you start to think about what the new people are gonna want and you start making gestures in that direction. And it's so important not to do that because that's how regimes change for one thing. Like they, like Hitler, you know, they won the elections, but they didn't, you know, they didn't have a majority. Um, you know, Trump won the elections, doesn't have a majority in the country, right? But if people drift that way because they think everyone's drifting that way, then before you know it, it's too late to do anything else except drift. Or to put it a different way, that first anticipatory moment of obedience can't be undone later. If you make that first move, then you just make move two, three, four, five, and six. If you can just hold yourself back from making that first move, then you know you might not make the other moves that follow. And also, you're 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 slowing down the the regime change. Which, to be clear, I think we're in a moment of regime change in the United States, right? It's a question of whether we stop it. It's not a question of like, oh, is it happening? You know, no, it's happening. The question is whether we can stop it. Um, so, and you know, this is, and, and normally adjusting to circumstances is perfectly normal, right? When I came in here, I realized I didn't have to wear a tie, for example, right? Like that's totally, it's totally normal. Um, I don't, right? I don't have to wear a tie. No, okay, all right. I mean, I was, see, I was getting a little bit of sprule from the front. Um, the, uh, the, I'll wear a tie tonight. Um, the, uh, so it's a normal social thing that we do that we adjust to, our, and that's how we get along, right? You go and you look around, you adjust. Um, um, and, and unless you're my six-year-old, in which case you don't, but the, in general you do. And, but there are, and even in politics, that's more or less appropriate to an extent. But there are moments when it's totally inappropriate. There are moments when you have to say, no, how am I gonna behave as an individual? How do I become the thing that radiates out the norms as opposed to the thing which absorbs the norms? And this is just one of those, this is one of those moments. That's number one. Um, Number two has to do with the institutions, which I which I already talked about. And I mean, if I group that one in with some succeeding ones, one of the, one of the things, and we're doing it in a way here, and it's all small scale, and that always has to be small scale, and should be small scale. But one of the things that one has to do is identify institutions and try to help them, right? So that. The, and that an institution means three things here. One thing, thing it means is the, the institutions of the American Constitution, you know, the rule of law, um, the judiciary, right? We all have to be friends of the judiciary. The lawyers have to act the right way. Um, one thing is identifying the constitutional institutions and trying to be on their side, trying to make the system that the founders gave us work. Which, by the way, like I find the founders so interesting because, like me, the founders weren't American exceptionalists, right? Like the founders looked around and said, yeah, we're human and we have human failings, and let's try to set up a system which will minimize the results of those human failings. I'm very sympathetic to that, right? In that sense, I'm a conservative. Um, I'm very sympathetic to the argument that, that human nature is flawed and like the smartest thing you can do is set up institutions to try to, to try to check it. And interestingly also, what the founders did is they said democracy generally is a big mess. It almost never works. Like, look at the Greeks, look at the Romans, right? And, and, and they, so they were doing, like, my move in this book is to do the same thing that they did because they looked at the past and said, this is how democracies fail. This is how republics fail. But the, but the only examples they had were Greece and Rome, basically, right? Whereas 
we, in 2017, we have the advantage that we can look back at 100 years of other kinds of democratic failure, like Weimar Germany or Czechoslovakia in the 40s, and that's what I'm trying to do in this book. We can look at how lo lots of other failures and draw lots of and draw lots of other lessons. So anyway, the constitutional institutions, the second kind of institutions are the professional ones. Um, so lawyers, doctors, policemen, really important. So. Um, I mean, everyone knows what some German doctors did in the Holocaust, so I won't belabor that, but not everybody knows that the way the law profession in Germany went over, right? So the, um, the, 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 gov the general governor of Poland, a man called Hans Frank, was, was Hitler's personal lawyer, and he had this very tedious doctrine that you know, what was good for the race was the law, right? Once you go that far, then the law becomes obviously empty and hollow and meaningless. Um, most people don't know maybe that the, the, the majority of the commanders of the Einsatzgruppen, the special task forces which carried out the mass murders of Jews and the handicapped and communists and others, were people with law degrees, right? So it, that the professional ethics is also, is also very important. Like it's important for people who are in a profession, whether it's the police or whether it's, whether it's medicine, to say, okay, we have an ethic and that ethic goes beyond whatever order might come down or whatever atmosphere we might currently have. I mean, policemen, I, I'm gonna belabor this now. The police, so I mentioned the Einsatzgruppen, the ordinary policemen, ordinary uniform policemen, the people who like back at home helped people cross the street, right? Those people killed more Jews than the Einsatzgruppen. Killed more Jews than the Einsatzgruppen and were involved in every mass murder. Every single mass murder, there were regular policemen involved. And these were people, again, who are not, I mean, you know, <sighs> not so different from other policemen, okay? It's easy to imagine them like through the Hollywood haze, sorry, through the Hollywood haze as being like different because they had starched uniforms or jackboots or something, but they were actually rather similar to us and to policemen that are around us now. Um, and all that happened to them was a few changes in their daily experience and, and they behaved very, very differently. So, and then the third kind of institutions are the non-governmental organizations. That, that you have to, you have, they have to spring up and they have to loop, they have to create the space, the thing that the East Europeans call civil society between the lonely individual and the big powerful government. Because you know the American story of freedom is that it's the lonely individual against the overpowering government and then somehow the individual wins at the end. Although like that actually never happens in real life, by the way, that just can't happen. It cannot happen, okay? It never happens that way. No, it just does, it never happens. Even in our, like Rosa Parks had help. It never happens that way in real life, okay? Everyone has to have some kind of help. We Freedom is not just the freedom to resist. Freedom is also the freedom to associate. And if you don't associate and have ways of association, you will lose confidence and you'll get crushed, right? So the third kind of institution is the non-governmental institution, the ones that have to spring up. So, okay, I, that was a long answer. There, anyway, but not to be an advertisement, but there are, then, there are 18 more after that in the book, like things that one can do. That's what the book's all about. Uh, we, have, we have a Facebook question. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think America's a champ. I, I don't think that. I think America's a big. I mean, I think America's. I have very subjective. Like, I like lots of countries. I like Russia. I like Poland. I like Ukraine. I like Germany. I even like Austria. I like France. These are all places I've lived. 
I also like America, but I'm not an American exceptionalist. I don't know where I should be talking. There, there, is that where I should be talking for the Facebook? I'm not an American exceptionalist. Like, I don't think that we're the champion of freedom or anything or any such nonsense like that. I think, though, that, so what, you know, I think, for example, that we are an oligarchy with democratic features. Until recently, we were a democracy with oligarchic features. I think and now we're, like, shifting to oligarchy with democratic features. I'm not like, a, I'm not like Joe America Wonderful. That's not my view at all. It's not that I'm saying that America is like always on the right side, you know, that we were not on the right side in Nicaragua. We were not on the right side in lots of places. That's not my view at all. My view, though, is that um, in, in the world as a whole, this thing that we take for granted, which I'm calling in a shorthand freedom, is in pretty short supply. And that in some ways, America, at least here, and for, again, for some people more than others, right? I mean, for African Americans, less than for, less than for others, I would say. But, if, but there, is, there is something like a rule of law state here, which permits a fair amount of individual freedom. And my point is, I'd rather have that than not. Right. I don't want that to go away. I'd rather there be more. Right. I'd rather I'd like to have the money out of politics. I'd like the gerrymandering to come to an end. Um, I'd like for the restrictive voter laws to go away. I would like for us to be a real democracy. But but we're not going to be a real democracy um, if we throw away everything that we've got or we let it go away. Right. So or to put it a different way. The fact that America is imperfect, which it is, doesn't mean that it's not worth fighting for, right? If you say, oh, America's flawed, therefore it doesn't matter that we have kleptocratic authoritarians ringed by quasi-fascists in power, I think then you're making a big analytical mistake, right? Then you're making a big analytical mistake. In order to get to a better America, which is what I want for my children and grandchildren, in order to get to America, we have to get through this and still have America, right? So... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the, the back first. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm currently pitching a TV show around town. I don't know if Facebook viewers can see that I'm making the jack-off motion with my good hand. But I wonder what cultural forces can do in a uh, time that's extremely reactionary against almost any form of celebrity. Being famous is seen as an antithetical thing to having valid political opinions. Yeah, I mean, this this may be a place like, since I'm not from California and I'm not famous, like this is I'm probably on weak ground, but it seems to me that the way to approach that issue would be in terms of breaking out of bubbles, and the way there are two basic ways of breaking. And this is, by the way, one of the lessons you know that, and there are two basic ways. The first is to spend less time on the internet and more time in real life. Right, you know, with apologies. Um, the uh, no, I mean, so the test for the internet is: does the internet help you to do something in real life? And if it's not like at the moment helping you do something in real life, you should, you know, you should get off it. Right? It's not an end in itself. You know, it's like sleep, but like much less restful. You know, the whole point of sleep, like it's not, you don't sleep. I mean, I, this, I have kids, so I sleep. It's, it is an end in itself for me. But in general, like you sleep to wake up, right? I mean, you do, you're on the internet in order to prepare yourself to do something else. And we have slightly, we have a bit lost sight of that. And one of the consequences of that has been that this thing we call community has been forming itself up in a subterranean way, right? on the internet, like there are people who are like, think that they're together on the internet, even though like if you looked in real life at the people they think they're with, a lot of them are robots, right? A lot of them aren't even real people. And a lot of them are people they wouldn't want to know in real life. And like a lot of them aren't Americans and they're pretending, you know, that, so the communities have formed up in this subterranean way. And I didn't realize how real this was until I, I canvassed, 
right? And then I and then I heard, and that was that was really wonderful. I mean, intellectually wonderful. It was politically extremely depressing, but it was it was intellectually and sociologically really interesting because I realized that. You know, it's so dumb, you know, but like if I can be dumb, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg's allowed to be dumb this way, I'm, I'm allowed to be dumb this way too. It is really interesting how different other people's Facebook feeds are, right? Like if you hear from 25 apparently independent sources that Hillary Clinton is a mass murderer, you believe it. And people really did believe it. I mean, I talked to perfectly normal people um, who, you know, voted for Trump because they thought Hillary Clinton was a mass murderer or something like mass murderer, right? Um, and so a, a, a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it has to do, one thing one has to do is to, br to break out of bubbles is to just spend like no more than an hour a day on the internet. Like given that we spend seven, right? The average American spends seven hours a day in front of a screen. Imagine what happened if we could get that down to six. <laughs> you know, honestly, like if it was six and a half instead of seven, Hillary Clinton would have won the elections, right? Because Trump killed her in the social media, which we didn't, you know, which everybody seemed to have just somehow not noticed, except for the Russia specialists who were like, wait a minute, all these bots who are working for Russia are now working for Trump. What's going on here? And Americans were like, why are you talking to us, Russia specialists? You're talking about things that happen in other countries. This couldn't possibly happen. This is, my, this is how I experienced 2016. Because I spent 2016 jumping up and down saying, hey, a whole lot of stuff that already happened in Russia is happening here. And people responded by saying, but hey, that was in Russia and it can't possibly happen here because America is exceptional and it's the champion of freedom around the world, right? That's, that's what happened, right? I mean, so... Um, anyway, where was I going with this? So the so the point one is one. Ha I think it would do it would do a lot of good if we just spent more time um, off the internet. And the second thing is travel, right? So like celebrities, okay, you know. So like when Hillary Clinton went to Ohio, which is where I'm from, and she talked in Cleveland, which she was going to win anyway. Um, uh, she surrounds herself with celebrities, like people that Ohioans even like, like LeBron James. Okay, that's fine, but. If people are going to be like, if the, the celebrities themselves I'm, have to sort of get into that thing that we call the real world and get off like stages and talk to people who, and that's hard, it's painful, right? Because part of the process of becoming a celebrity, I suppose, is that you're surrounded by ever, few peop, ever fewer people who actually disagree with you or even talk to you or even look you in the eye. I don't know, right? But I'm guessing it's something like that. And so it's just to keep this in perspective, it is actually for me really encouraging that out here on the West Coast, there are major cultural figures who are in at least a kind of cultural rebellion because in Germany, that wasn't true. I mean, going back to like what's better and what's worse, in Germany, most of the major cultural figures, I mean, the, the, the Jews obviously were forced into immigration, right? And therefore we have Hollywood basically. But um, but no, it's, I mean, it's, it's largely true. I mean, Austrian, uh, Jews from Austria and Germany who were forced to immigrate, you know, <laughs> create a huge amount of American culture just as they've been creating a huge amount of Austrian and German culture. But, um, but, 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 um, okay, now I've lost my train of thought here. So the, 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 the other thing is that celebrities have to, de I think, have to de-celebre, is that a word? They have to stop becoming celebrities and like actually talk to people where it's hard. And that's kind of a good lesson for everybody, right? Like one of the, one of the big debate, one of the things that people push back on me with a book in general is, do I really have to talk to people who disagree with me? And the answer is not, the answer is just talk to people. Right, like I don't think we I, like you have to go out like across town and pick a fight, but I do think, I do think that we have that people have to talk, not knowing what the other person thinks. You know, I think that'll that would that alone would be would be a big difference. So I'm sorry I couldn't give you a specific no, question, but but, but those are those are some riffs. Um, okay, this gentleman, please.
institutions that we should look to to lead that effort? And can you name one or two techniques that I could adopt personally that might lead in that direction? Okay, yeah, on a, on a modest scale, yes. I think you know people are gonna have better ideas about this than I do. And one of the nice things about this book is that I'm now, I'm now hearing from people from Silicon Valley, which is for me like, such like such an alien environment, you know, like not that I'm against it. I just, I just, you know, I don't have any friends there, um, but who, who have read the book and are thinking, oh yeah, you know, there's things that you're set talking about Snyder, we can do on the scale of billions. And I think, okay, well you just did them on the scale of billions and that's why Trump was elected, but let's, you know, so, so like, okay, fine, let's work together. Um, no, it's true. I mean, if like Facebook had had some kind of news filter, right? If it had that, she would have won. She would have won. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, okay, but let me try to focus on this. Um, no, no. I mean, I agree that like there are all kinds of other things wrong, right? There were like so the thing that you're calling neoliberalism is 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 the thing that I'm calling. I'm just a little slightly more broad, broadly the politics of inevitability in the book, right? Okay. So, but my, yeah, but y y y yes. So yes, I do believe we can get back to a truth-based environment. Not completely, but I think we it, it can be pushed back in that direction. And one of the reasons I think this is that you already see it happening at the level of at least certain milieu, right? You do see people who are doing things like realizing they need to subscribe to newspapers and journal. It seems like a small thing, but if everybody who read the New York Times subscribed to it, right? If everybody who read the Washington Post subscribed to it, or if everybody who read the LA Times subscribed to it, we'd be in a different world because then they would have much more money to do the investigative reporting which is a part of my answer to your question. I really do think that we're like, even more than in Watergate, the investigative reporters are gonna be the heroes of 2017, 2018, because all the stuff we actually know, like for example, about Trump and Russia, which is one of my, you know, one of my bugbears, all the stuff that Americans actually know, or let's say 95%, comes from investigative reporters who actually took a little bit of time and had a little bit of money to write some kind of story. Starting back in the summer, um, with, with Frank Four and some long articles he wrote in, in, in Slate. Um, it, it, you have, the, the things we know, as opposed to the things we guess or surmise or like that are pitched to us, that comes from the reporters. So I really do think that investigative reporters are going to be heroes and it's gonna be like a place for young people to go to. You know, it doesn't pay a ton of money obviously, but it's a thing you can do when you're young and you can travel, you know, and you can, you, you can and make a name for yourself. And I'm already seeing that happening. And I think that's encouraging. Little things one can do, you know, I already mentioned like subscribing. There's also managing your own internet use, which I'm sure you do, right? So if, if people, so a lot of this is done by robots and I, I'm not asking you to actually like track the robots down, but if each individual takes responsibility, like we, if, we, if we all say I'm a publisher, because we're all publishers now, because everyone who can, you know, every, every time you pass on an article of the internet, you're publishing it, right? <laughs> if we all say we're all publishers and I'm gonna apply standards of publication, that would make a huge difference, right? And it's probably something that all of you already do already, but if that were done more broadly, that would make, and if you just spread this idea that you don't pass on things on the internet just because like they momentarily catch your fancy, but because you actually believe that they're true. And you know, another thing I think is kind of interesting I advocate, and this is again all in the book more articulately, is to 
have as it were a personal relationship with reporters so you don't have to know them personally but you can follow like the, the the reporters who actually go physical places you know i have a lot of friends like real friends actually who are war reporters and you you, you follow them when they go from place to place you realize they're in a real place doing real work and then you put their stuff on your facebook or whatever people use i mean i'm a dinosaur so i use facebook but um but whatever you use what you tweet whatever instagram you use the you use you only do that with people who you as it were know and trust and again if, if a lot of people did that it would make a lot of difference so um, yeah, and then, I mean, in terms of, of then, but then attitudinally, so in terms of like political theory, you gotta, you have to be willing to say there's truth. You have to be willing to say there's truth. Um, this is, a, I mean, this is a way that I think the American left has, you know, it's taken out a dagger and it sliced its own Achilles heel. And like now it's looking at the other Achilles heel and saying, oh, should I do the other one too? Like, that's where we are. Um, and I say that with as much sympathy as, you know, can be mustered. But it's not, I mean, the dumb version is postmodernism created Trump. That's stupid, right? Postmodernism did not create Trump. But postmodernism makes it harder for people to criticize the post-truth phenomenon. So you have to be willing to say, you have to be willing to say, there's truth, there are facts. You have to be willing to say that. And I notice it's interesting that both the Times and the Post, as I live on the East Coast, both the Times and the Post have taken a really hard line on this, right? The Post's motto is democracy dies in darkness, right? You know, and one of the riffs on that is like, that's, that's, that is more depressing than the majority of heavy metal bands' names, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which, which, which it is, but it also happens to be true, right? Democracy dies in darkness is true. And the times, like if you're in Manhattan, they like have all these ads now, out now, which basically say, hey, there's such thing as truth, right? So that's philosophically I find very interesting. But if you don't like, it's kind of like one of these things, if you're not willing to take any risks, we're done. If you're not willing to say there are facts, I think we're also done. And it has to be a kind of lean forward position, you know, like, oh yeah, that's your, if you like, I think we're past the moment where like, oh, that's your opinion and here's my opinion. I think if we're, if, if we stay there, I think I think we're finished, right? Um, because that view, like if everything is a matter of opinion, then what wins? And you know this so much better than me. But then what wins is the thickest wallet, right? I and mean, whoever, if it's all spec, if it's if every opinion is equally valid, um, you know. And I went to Brown in the '80s, so like that's a sentence that I've heard more often than any human should hear it. But if every opinion is equally valid, that means that what's going to win is whoever can broadcast the opinion the most effectively and that's whoever unfortunately that's whoever has the most money which is kind of which is kind of where we are so the people so the truth people are on the defensive and you have to and you have to be willing to actually take a stand and say yeah there's truth because we don't have the most money right so you have to actually you have to admit that you're armed like that facts are your weapons that you believe in them right you have those guns in your holster you think they're real you think and i you know i do so it's easy for me but yeah okay yeah please Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the question, if I understood it correctly, has to do with 
um, historical significance of collective action in, in urban settings, right? So um, let, me, let me start by going back to Germany for a moment, because I've already, I've said some of the ways that we're worse than the Germans in the 30s, which you know, generally gets people's attention. Um, there are some ways in which we've been better, and, and one of them has been the speed. So with um, the, 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 the anti, you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. So when Hitler comes to power in early 1933, and there are immediate um, official, quasi-official forms of persecution against the Jews, what's happening there? What's happening there is, first of all, a transformation of urban space. So if I'm allowed to say, like if I write Jew and Jewish or Aryan on businesses, on public places, I'm transforming the public space and I'm transforming people's imagination about fundamental things, like for example, private property. Because if that shop is labeled Jewish, I start to think, hmm, well, maybe they're not gonna have that indefinitely, right? And so then I go down this road of temptation of, okay, well, maybe somebody's gonna get it, so maybe it should be me. After all, my family needs it, you know, and so on and so forth, right? And so one thing which happens right at the beginning is this transformation of public space. The other thing which is happening with, with, with the anti-Semitic policy is the transformation of citizens or neighbors into aliens or into part of a, of a worldwide threat. So you, what happens in Germany in, in 33 is that you take a minority which is you know, very, very small and assimilated and actually extremely loyal, um, and, and you say, these people are not your neighbors, they're not citizens, they're in fact part of a worldwide conspiracy. Right, they're part of world Jewry, Weltjudentum, and then 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 what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to think of your neighbor not as your neighbor but as a threat or as like a small part of this worldwide threat, which makes them it means that you don't have to treat them with the normal consideration that a neighbor or a fellow citizen would would have, um, and that also that that also transforms the space because people then you know they cross the street they don't make small talk right some of the lessons of the book are like little things like don't cross the street and make small talk make eye contact right for this reason so the urban space gets transformed because maybe you know when you're walking your kid home from school you cross the street right you don't say hi to the other mom you think she's about to lose her place in kindergarten whatever it might be right that transforms the urban space so Germans in 33 they had other problems it should be said um, like the SS was on the street beating people up but but Germans in 33 didn't react to that the way that Americans did. So a lot of Americans, some of them Jews, some of them Muslims, but most of them neither, reacted to the Muslim bans um, it, fast, which you have to do. It has to be immediate, because if you don't do it immediately, um, then the logic sinks in very quickly, right? If you don't react immediately, the, like if a bunch of people don't go to the airports and get the cameras on them, then most people are gonna think, okay, well, this is normal. Let's Now let's think about the next step. Right. And the next step is maybe you're, you know, maybe that Muslim doctor and I'm from the Midwest where like a lot of the doctors are Muslim. Right. Um, maybe that Muslim doctor is going to lose his practice or, you know, maybe this person is going to lose their maybe they're going to lose their fruit stand, you know, whatever it might be. Right. That. And so you have to hit it right at the beginning. And there Americans actually have done a pretty good job in part because I think they see this logic. And that's part of the, what's one of the things I'm trying to say in the book is that. We're not, it's not that we're better people than Germans or Austrians or Czechs or what have you, the, but we do have an advantage and the advantage is that we can learn. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can learn from them. Okay, second part of the answer. Yes, um, the only way to resist, as far as I can tell, there are gonna be other people who know other histories, but as far as I can tell, the, the only way you can resist is by being able to assemble large numbers of people 
on a regular basis. If you can't do that, it's very hard to exert pressure. So pre even today, pressure is exerted in the real world. And so, you know, it comes with the social media, going back to actually your question, it only, like if you can get a million likes, okay, you know, if you can get 10,000 people of those million on the street, that's a totally different phenomenon, right? The recent example of that, um, the recent example of that was Ukraine, where, you know, there's a young, so the, the, the person who actually started the Maidan revolution in Ukraine is a young Russian speaking journalist of, well, he's not that young, you know, young, okay, young. Um, Mustafa, if you're watching, sorry, um, of, 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 of Afghan origin, right? His parents, were, his parents were refugees from Afghanistan. And the post that he wrote, on, I think it was, yeah, it was on Facebook, said, um, you know, if you, if you don't like what's happening, meet me on the Maidan, which is the main square in Kiev, at, I think it was seven o'clock, maybe eight o'clock tonight. And then the last words, this was all in Russian, but the last words were, likes don't count, right? So like that moment where the thing you do on social media becomes an action in the real world, we actually put your physical body somewhere, that's that is actually really important. The, in, in, in communist Eastern Europe, the only example of effective resistance um, was solidarity, the solidarity movement in Poland, which precisely involved getting huge amounts of actually starting with labor union, a labor union and workers, getting huge amounts of people assembled at factories, at shipyards, right, in, in, in big cities. That, and so I think it's, it sounds very old fashioned, but it's very important to be able to get the bodies into the streets. And, that's, and it's important for a, lot of, for a lot of reasons. One is it makes, going back to things people already said, it makes you feel better, right? Another is it buys time while you think about what you're gonna do next, right? Because yeah, I mean, so the Women's March um, doesn't immediately produce an agenda, but it buys time because you can say, okay, look, we can do a march. Like, and if you count all the people who marched all across America, right, it's several million people. So, I mean, not just the Washington March was bigger than the inauguration, but actually like the march here was bigger than the inauguration, right? Um, if you take the marches together, it's several million people. And so if several million people come out, then you think, okay, well, that means we can do other things. We don't know what yet, but we've bought ourselves some time. Um, and the, the third thing is with, if it, when it continues in the long run, is that you, when you demonstrate, you see people you didn't expect to see, and that's actually the crucial moment. Like when you see, when you're out demonstrating and you see that person who you thought would never demonstrate, that's the moment when things might actually start to change, right? Because you were never gonna convince that person over the internet, you just, it wasn't gonna happen. But when they're out and you say, hey, right? Like when I'm out and I see Republican fundraisers, which I do, you know, I think, okay, like they're right here, I'll talk to them, you know? So, okay. Yeah. Um, yes, ma'am. I know what that looks like. 
They don't need police on the streets. They take ownership but, but, of the truth. But, but they are the police on the streets. They infiltrated, you know, the Catholics infiltrated everything. So being Irish and Catholic were synonymous, and if you didn't yeah. fit into that, you were outside. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we could talk a bit about that, because I don't think that that, you know, being an Irish Catholic, I can say that. But a lot of my American friends find that a kind of an embarrassing thing. Yeah. They're yeah. Jewish. Yeah. They're wasps. They right. can't call out these dangerous Irish Okay, so you didn't you didn't mention Gaffrey, Joseph Gaffrey, who's also Catholic and who he's the person who is most responsible for spreading the idea that Islam is not a religion but a political ideology, right? And he's he's been those ideas have been mainstreamed under the current administration, and you know his his father as a Catholic was actually, you know, oppressed in the United States, right? Because in the United States, we used to have this idea um, that the Catholics, so you can like, just like, you can bracket and just like put in the word Muslim wherever you want, but like, we had this idea that the Catholics were part of a world conspiracy and that there were secret documents in the Vatican and there was all a plan to take us over, right? Those were very big ideas in the United States in the, you know, through the Second World War, right? I mean, as some, you know, as some of you will remember, I mean, Kennedy being elected was a pretty big deal in this country because it was an anti-Catholic country. And, you know, the, a lot of what the Ku Klux Klan was about, they, they were anti-Semitic, yes, they were, they were anti-black, and that was the mainstream. But they were also anti-Catholic, right? I mean, they they were so so. The, one of the ironies of all of this is that um, these folks, whose parents and grandparents, actually faced the same ideas, right? That they're now spreading. They face the same that exact same scheme of things. That there are these people, like there are these Catholics, but and they say they're Americans, but they're not really Americans because they're really part of this world conspiracy and they have their orders and they have their leaders and those orders and those leaders are not American and they're inimical to us, right? That actually happened to, that happened to Irish Catholics in, in this country. And I'm just gonna point that out because it seems like that's a worthwhile thing to know as we consider all of this, right? Okay, so um, now as, as to Irish Catholics being in charge. Um, so I talk a lot about Eastern Europe because that's what I know about. And my basic, like my article of faith in all of this is that we should all be doing things where we feel like we're on sure ground. Um, you know, we should do the thing that we know how to do well, but more so, or more publicly, or more assertively, or in a bigger hurry. And if everybody does that, it's probably going to be okay. And so, I so my book is about Eastern Europe because that's where I feel confident. Um, but on this business of truth, I'm just going. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to dodge the fact that like these are all that 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 they're all. Catholics, although I find it really, I find, I, Ban so, oh, so they're Catholics against Catholicism, that's not, so Bannon, right, like, so, so, I mean, it's like the Jesus-free Christianity, you know, in a certain, in a certain variant, B Bannon is a Catholic who is against the current line of the Catholic Church, I'm sure you're all aware of this, right, I mean, he's, he's, Bannon is, you know, Bannon actually wants to, the culture war, which the present Pope, you know, whatever his flaws might be, doesn't actually seem, seem to want. And, and Bannon's Catholic references are actually very often to people who were um, on the fascist side of things, you know, like Evola. So, okay. But on the truth thing, here, um, here I think you've you put your finger on something extremely important because there, there, there are two versions of what truth might be. And I, I thank you for this question because it helps me to clarify what I mean. There's a version of truth which, you know, truth with a capital T. I did, a, I did this long, when, when my friend, my colleague, um, Tony Jett was, 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 was dying. I did a book with him called Thinking the 20th Century, and in one of the latter chapters of that book, we were trying to sort out 
this whole business of truth. And one of the distinctions we made was between truth with a big T, whether that's a communist explanation for everything or whether that's um, or whether that's a religious claim to total knowledge, right? The truth that subordinates, puts in order all the other truths. The truth which, when you seem to have evidence against it, you have to figure out how the evidence against it is actually evidence for it, right? You know, if you, you know, if you, you mentioned the Jesuits soon, what I'm talking about. Um, if, 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 if that's what you mean by truth, then of course you're right. Then truth does become this notion of one truth, that's authoritarian, right? Because what that means is that somebody's the guardian of that truth and, it's okay, and that person has the right to, to educate children not to question that truth and so on and so forth. And that's not what I mean, right? So what, what I mean by believing in truth is believing in truth with a small t, that there are, there are, there are a million little truths out there Right, and it's hard. It's admittedly it's harder than the big T. Like it's easy to say like yes, God, and then and then no God. Right, like you know yes, no, but that's not what we need. Like people like being, um, I think people being militant atheists is not going to save the day. Frankly, I mean it's fun, you know, for people, to, but I don't think that's actually going to save the day in the United States of America for people to mill it. I mean, in a believing country like this, I don't think that's going to save the day. What I think is more important is 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 to affirm. That, that, that there are a million truths, you know, that not not in the sense of like your opinion, my opinion, but in the sense of there are truths about soil erosion in Nebraska. There are truths about the Monongahela Aquifer. There are truths about global warming. There are truths about what the law says and doesn't say, and so on. Right? In that, that's what I mean by truth. Right? I don't mean the one. I, I mean I mean the many. Right? I mean the many. So you know. Thanks, but I mean I think you should write the op-ed. Right? You should write the op-ed about the Irish Catholics. Um, yeah, please. So the, I mean, there, there's an event which took place just a few years ago, and I already referred it referred to it in response to that question, which is actually strikingly similar to the U.S. And the reason we don't see it as similar, I think, has to do with the fact that we just we have a lot of trouble seeing anything as similar, which is understandable. I mean, we're a big country, et cetera. But sometimes, our sometimes our blindness, to, or, or, or rather, it's not our blindness. It's more that we see things that happen in other countries as being as being like illustrations of what we think anyway. You know, like when you hear American commentators talk, it's like Iraq and Syria and Russia and Ukraine or the European Union, you know. I mean, how many Fox News commentaries have you seen which started with the statement, the European Union, the European Union which is the biggest economy in the history of the world, right? The European Union, which is the biggest internal market in the history of the world. The European Union, you know, no one ever, like that's what's true. But like for us, the European Union, even though it's the biggest economy in the history of the world, is just a kind of ideological marker for our own, our own little domestic disagreements. The reason I'm saying that, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to define the problem because I think we sometimes miss the stuff that's right in front of our face in terms of similarities. So the thing which is really similar on, on many grounds, um, much more similar uh, much, it takes much less work to make the comparison than it does to say to Germany in the 30s is Ukraine in 2013-2014. In Why? Well, because in Ukraine you had a man who did win elections, very close ones, um, running on a fairly similar campaign um, uh, platform to Mr. Trump. His name was Viktor Yanukovych. 
Uh, he did win. He did come to power legitimately. Then his main policy in power was to make everybody who was a blood relation extremely rich, right? Which whatever one thinks about like the ideology of this president, that's clearly like somewhere close to the core. Like everyone called Trump is supposed to be rich forever and probably they're supposed to be president forever. You know, we're going to have various Trumps and Trump lines and Trumpoviches, you know, forever. Like that's, that's the idea. That, no, that is that's the idea, guys. They're going to be they're going to be Trump. There's going to be Trumpovich. There's going to be Trumpovich the second, um, Trump Jr., Trump the third, Baron, Baronet. You know, it's just going to keep coming. There are going to be more and more Trumps forever. That's what they're after, and they're all going to be unbelievably rich, even though they've never done any work. That's the American way. Um, so, um, so anyway, Yanukovych in power uh, took a took a society which was already oligarchical, more so than ours, but but you know, some, roughly similar and tried to make it oligarchical with one main oligarch, mainly, namely himself, which, you know, maybe you see a little bit of resemblance to what's happening now. And then his son, who was a dentist, quickly became um, the richest person in the whole country for no particular reason, except that his dad was president. Uh, so you have, oh, I mean, lest we skip over the superficial things, his main advisor was a man called Paul Manafort, right? So Paul Manafort, um, was was the chief strategic advisor to Viktor Yanukovych and got him elected president of Ukraine, just like Paul Manafort was the chief strategic advisor of Donald Trump and got him elected president of the United States. And that's not a coincidence at all because the two men, Trump and Yanukovych, share the same web of associates, um, which is another broad similarity, which is Russia. So um, the, it's not that Yanukovych was a Russian stooge any more than Trump I don't think. I mean, I, it's hard to know, but he, he, there were certain dependencies, let's say, and certain subordinations and certain surprising genuflections towards Moscow from both Kiev and now from, from, from Washington, right? So you have a very similar situation um, in, in all of those respects. Um, and then you got to the point where um, you got to the point where there was, I'm, I'm shortening a long story, but you got to the point where there was violence and the regime was in fact overthrown. And it was overthrown at the point where it stepped across the line of the rule of law um, and started doing things which in the society, so I mean, you don't have to know a lot about Ukraine, it's, it's, it's a very flawed country, but one of the things which was a political norm in that flawed country was no violence by the government against the citizens. At the moment when that, vi when that, when that norm was broken and people were beaten and then killed, then, then that government was overthrown. It was overthrown after it had basically declared itself a kind of dictatorship. So, you know, I, I, am, I, I hope that, that we don't get that far, but it is a kind of useful, it's a useful model, um, in, in part because of the, it's, I think it's important to recognize that when you, and this is something the founders said, of course, you know, looking back at ancient Greece, they talked about oligarchy, a useful Greek word. It, 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 it is actually normal for people when they come to power and there's no rule of law to just try to assemble as much money as possible. Because why wouldn't they? You know, why wouldn't they? Assuming, you know, they're not patriots. Why, why wouldn't, and he's not, of course. Why, why wouldn't they? And, you know, once you, so you, once you don't have the rule of law, then they'll just do that. And then the only argument the citizenry can have is, wait, we want, the, we want the rule of law, which is the argument that Ukrainians made. The American attitude is something like, we've got the rule of law, so it's going to be okay, which I think is not quite right. You know, I think you have to, like, you have to fight for the rule of law or else you're not going to have it. But, but also because it's, I mean, I'm not going to make a broader point, and it's actually your point because you asked a good question. What's happening in the U.S. is, is part of a global trend. And it's part of a global trend where rulers, roughly speaking, or aspiring rulers um, who at, at some level are just kleptocratic 
authoritarians use some version of right-wing ideology to pacify or mobilize a big part of the population, right? So, you know, the, I mean, everybody here knows this, so it's almost painful to say it, but the people who are going to get rich under Trump are not the people who voted for Trump, right? Um, that, that, at least not mo most of the people who voted for Trump or a lot of the people who voted for Trump are going to do very poorly under this administration or already are doing worse under this administration. Um, but the ideology of like, the, the ideology of America first and I am your voice and lock her up and build the wall, you know, that's not just us. That's also the Netherlands and France and, and, and Austria and Russia, right? That's all, that's all around the world. And so it's useful to follow the logic of your question and to look at other places because some of this stuff has happened before. Oh, I forgot the main resemblance, fake news. That's fake news and the attempt to hack an election, right? Russia tried to hack the Ukrainian presidential election in 2014, the one that tr took place after the revolt that pushed Yanukovych from power and they failed. They failed, they failed to hack it. And the Ukrainians are much less, for the most part, they're much less, forgive me, stupid and naive about fake news than we are because they know Russian and Russia is their neighbor and like they're they're aware of what how the game is played in a way that we're not right so we got totally ambushed by the fake news in 2016 we just got killed by the fake news and and the thing which hurt me so much as an American watching it was just how slow we were, like just how slow we were compared to the, the people in Eastern Europe who like they would just look like I had so many conversations with like Russian friends who just looked at me basically shrugged like, why don't you see what's happening to you, right? Because it's the same thing that happened to us. Like why can't anyone do anything about this? And we just slept walked through basically being defeated in a cyber war in 2016. Anyway, that's another similarity, the, the export of fake news. The big time export of fake news starts when Russia presents the Ukra events in Ukraine as being about Nazis and fascists and so on. That's the first moment of export of fake news. By the time they get to us in 2016, they're more subtle, they're better, right? Very likely the reason they hacked the voter rolls, remember they hacked the voter rolls, they tried in 25 states, I think 25, 26, to hack the voter rolls, wasn't probably to intervene in the elections directly, because that's not the same thing. Hacking a machine is not the same as having, but if you have the voter rolls, you know who's a Republican, right? And then you know where to, you know where to, you know where to pitch the fake news, right? And there's a reason why Trump killed Clinton on the fake news front, right? So that's something they tried in Ukraine that didn't work. Um, they tried it here and it did work. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons for us to be humble and to try to learn from other examples, which isn't to say that like everybody, the people in other countries are great. It's just to say that they've had experiences. Yes, please. Um, my name is Sheila. I'm from Cleveland, and um, I'm an artist. Um, and I'm just curious to know uh, what kind of a dialogue, if you are imagining having a dialogue with somebody from a red state who thinks that they're, the reason they're having problems is uh, government intervention in their lives, uh, how, how would you have a dialogue? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't find it so mysterious because I have those I have those conversations all the time, and I'm gonna like it's fun to be with y'all, but I'm gonna like I'm gonna tour with this book in Ohio too, and like that's that's when the fun's gonna start, right? Um, it, it it seems I mean the the first thing, 
I mean, I guess the first thing is for it to be normal, right? I mean, a lot of people voted for Trump, and a lot of people voted for Trump for reasons that I actually find. Like, I think it was a mistake to do it. I, I think that people who voted for Trump for these reasons that I think are reasonable were taken in, right? I, I mean, I, like, my sympathy has limits. But I think there are, re there are reasons why, you know, that makes sense. And I think inequality is one of them, you know? Um, I mean, people may think that, you know, like that the, the problem is, I would disagree, you know, with the premise that you're putting out from our imaginary red stater that government intervention is the problem. Like, I would tend to think that it's the, it's the weakness of government intervention, which is the problem, right? But I think it's important, A, that the conversation seem normal, right? And B, that one accepts that the grievances are sometimes anyway, real. I mean, not always, but sometimes, right? Because I think we on the coasts, um, have a tendency to say, have a tendency to sort of push it all to the extreme and say, well, of course they did that because they're racists or whatever. But, you know, let's remember that the people in Ohio who put Trump in the Oval Office were the white males who voted twice for Obama, right? Yeah, they did. I mean, if you take, if the men who voted twice for Obama had all voted for Clinton, she would have taken Ohio, right? So, yeah, maybe they're racists or maybe they don't have the right idea, but they don't have the ideas about race that one would want, but it can't be quite so simple or else they wouldn't have voted for Obama twice, right? So it, it, we have a tendency to kind of push it to the extreme and then kind of like make it distant and then make it laughable and got to resist that. Um, so the grievances are real. And like, and the other thing is like, sometimes people will be right. Like things that people say about Hillary Clinton are often true. They may not be reasons to vote against her, but they sometimes, sometimes they're true. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of listening, but I mean, as for government intervention or something like that, then I try to make the case from the ground up, you know, and I, I always personally, and it's easy for me because I believe in it. I, I make the case from the starting point of freedom. So like if you believe in freedom, there have to be individuals and for there to be individuals who are not um, overcome by fear and insecurity, they have to believe that things like healthcare and pensions and education for their children are actually in place. And that if one, and one can't really have those things without a certain amount of government intervention, that, you know, in very basic things like clean air, clean water, you can't really have those things. Like, so I try to start from the things that I think people really want. Like they want to have their, a good kindergarten for their school, for their kids, and they want to be able to breathe. They want their, sometimes they want their children to have clean air. You know, those kinds of things that you can't really have without the government, that's, that's usually where, where I start. And then people might make the argument that, oh, yes, it'd be better if the whole atmosphere were privatized and the Great Lakes were privatized. You know, people, which is like, that's a Mike Pence favorite, by the way, um, privatizing the Great Lakes. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be fantastic. Um, Flint, Flint, Michigan for everybody. Um, but, um, but, but, um, but I try to start, I try to start there. And also like the thing, like, you know, the sort of like, okay, so there's a place for righteousness. And then there's like, cause you, if you're not right, like going back to the question about truth, like if you're not righteous about certain things, you might as well give up, right? I'm righteous about certain things. But then there's also, there's also, there's a place for, there's a place for listening and this is kind of a human thing, but it's also it's also a strategic thing because I mean, as I see it, you know, the country like, you know, she got three million more votes than he did. Um, if things hadn't, if, if he got really lucky, you know, he got really lucky in lots of weird ways. But for things to change in this country, it's not going to be that everybody in the red states who voted for Trump changes their mind. But some of them have to. Some of them have to. Some of them have to change their minds, and they're not going to change their minds because they decide they suddenly like Hillary Clinton. You know, they're not even going to change their minds because they suddenly become Democrats. But they are going to change their minds because they think somebody who they trust or they think is at least a reasonable human being talks to them. And they may, and they may not even, they won't even change their mind during the conversation. That almost never happens. But maybe like if they think that you've been reasonable with them, you know, a couple months later, something else will happen to them and the things you've, like they lose their health insurance, 
God forbid, God forbid, that's going to be so awful. Um, but then the things that you said maybe then hit home a little bit. You like you've planted you've planted the seed. So I don't have that much tactical advice. You know, whenever I do it, like it's not like, like when I was canvassing in Ohio, like I did not have the feeling at all. Like I'm I'm okay at talking to people, but I did not have the feeling that I like persuaded anybody at all to change their vote. I think I pers- I, I I was working pretty hard. I think I can I think I convinced one person not to vote at all. <laughs> and I think that was like that's as far that's as far as it went. Um, but then I like to think that some of the things I said back then in September and in October, for example, about Russia, because I was kind of on that a long time ago, that maybe some of those things are now, like I like to think that maybe some of those things are now sinking in. Who knows? But yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, I'm just Timothy Snyder. Yeah, yeah, you can follow me. You can like me. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can, you can, you know, you can follow me. In, yeah. 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 You know what? You know what? You know what? I actually I realized that I'm not that good at this stuff, but I realized that was a problem. And the night before last, I stayed up all night and answered like all of my like like all of my follow requests or whatever it was. So there should be space now. Yeah. 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 Thanks.